Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before I get started, I know you've already downloaded the episode because you're listening to it. But before you just get back to what you're doing, take a look at the episode description for each show. It'll give you more background on our guest, on their work, whether or not that's a book or a website or a substack, or any of the information that we reference during the show. It'll give you that extra context you need to not only listen and understand, but also go spread the pro-democracy gospel. Thanks, everybody, and on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by John Ward. John has covered American politics and culture for two decades as a city desk reporter in Washington, D.C., as a White House correspondent, and as a national affairs correspondent covering two presidential campaigns. Today, he's an author and senior political correspondent for Yahoo News. He's also the host of The Long Game Podcast and publisher of the Substack newsletter, Order Stalkers. His latest book, which came out earlier this year, is Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. And it's available wherever fine books are sold. John, welcome. Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you and talk with you. No, it's good to see you, too. It's been far too long. So let's talk about the book. So it's called Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. And one thing I found, John, is that I don't want to say that you and I were on parallel tracks growing up, but you grew up in suburban Maryland. I grew up in suburban Virginia. You grew up within the evangelical movement. I grew up, I guess, until I was 12 anyway, within the um, Reformed Judaism community. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, your childhood and coming up at that time in that place, in a place like Washington, D.C., and begin to take us a little bit on the journey that I think you're still on, but you really start to get into in your book. I grew up in a very fundamentalist environment. And by fundamentalist, you know, some people have said, well, that's a very specific theological movement within Christianity, which it is. But I use the term more broadly as a way of viewing the world in black and white absolute terms. You know, a lot of good and evil, us versus them, all or nothing, those sorts of categories. And my parents were pretty standard post-war baby boomers. You know, their parents were Catholics and mainline Episcopalians you know, World War II veterans. Those were my grandparents. And my parents were actually a little on the late side of the 60s. So they were graduating high school in the late 60s and really kind of missed the good parts of the 60s and came of age as the 60s were kind of turning very dark in the late 60s with assassinations and racial violence and Vietnam coming to a crescendo and then Watergate into the early 70s. And so they became part of something called the Jesus Movement, which had elements of hippie culture mixed with very low church ecclesiology, just meaning, you know, whether it was a Catholic parish or a non-denominational church, the hallmarks of this kind of religion were, it was very casual in dress and very intense in its emotion and its quest for authenticity and for transcendence in a very personal way. There was a lot of emphasis on a personal relationship with God. And so over time, this kind of thing, this movement kind of got absorbed into a more longstanding tradition of conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical Christianity, which focuses very much on a literal reading of the Bible, 
in the zeitgeist at the time was a big focus on the end times, the end of the world, the book of Revelation, which created a whole host of other problems, which I would kind of characterize as a disdain for the created world and a kind of Gnostic focus and emphasis on the spiritual over and above the physical, the temporal, the material, which I think led to a bit of nihilism. Well, and let me ask you that because I was interested about that and interested in your faith in that even if you are reading the Bible literally and you have committed yourself and your family and your community 100% to your faith, to your church, you still got to get up in the morning, still got to go to the bathroom, still got to eat. At some point you have to, I know your father was a pastor, at some point you have to make enough money to live. So how is it that you can live within the world, but not be of the world, I guess? I mean, I think that directive, which is kind of a paraphrase, being in but not of the world, a paraphrase of some of Christ's teachings, that was something I picked up on pretty early as a kid and a young person is something I wanted to live up to and embody. But I don't think our church really emphasized that idea very much. There emphasis was much more on separating from the world, seeking a sense of purity by creating that separation, creating that distance, and holding ourselves out as the bride of Christ, the church, those who have been set apart for God's purposes. All of that was really how we thought of ourselves. And I'm not really going to argue that high church or thicker institutions are necessarily the answer to the problem here, although I, I am a big believer in institutions, when you pair that thinking with a low church structure without a lot of accountability or institutional hierarchy or accountability, it just creates these isolated congregations or families of congregations where the congregation, the members kind of retreat and are cut off from the rest of society, the community, and are really at the whims of the leaders who, in my experience and many others, create these self-reinforcing structures of thought, language, belief. I want to emphasize language again because that's such a big tool and weapon for leaders who want to manipulate people into following orders. And that was sort of where we found ourselves probably by the 80s is in these small bubbles where there was some emphasis on reading and thinking at certain different points throughout our history. But the answers to a lot of the questions were already out there. Like we knew what these answers were. This was not a quest for exploring and understanding the mystery of the divine. We had a very clear set of answers that came from the Bible. And so those determined how we thought about a lot of things in life, not just in church, but in you know our personal lives. The political sphere was kind of dismissed. But yeah, that's sort of where we found ourselves. It sounds a little bit like the Catholic Church sort of pre-Reformation, right? There's a very small number of people who understand the literature, who understand the liturgy. They're the ones who will explain it to you. Otherwise, you listen and you believe. Am I wrong? I'm happy to be wrong. I'm just, that's, that was the sense I got reading it. There are definitely parallels in the ways that, I mean, obviously, everybody in, in these churches was literate. And, you know, the church services were not conducted in Latin, so everybody could understand what the preacher was saying. But there is a parallel in the ways that the leaders were elevated to a place of quasi-infallibility. 
Let's talk about the leaders for a second, because this is throughout religious history and political history and human history. Where do you think that the leaders of a church like the one you grew up in, and I'm going to use this word and it's the wrong word, John, but I'm not sure what the right word, maybe real is, I don't want to use the word epiphany because that's probably not appropriate, but the realization perhaps that these people are going to listen to me and I can tell them what to do and I have them generally under my sway. I mean, is that the ego just overtakes everything else? Where do you think the crossover point is for folks like this? Because we've seen it a lot, right? It's not unusual. And yours was one more example. You know, as diverse as the human experience is, there's probably many different ways in which that happens, some more crass and cynical than others. My experience with the leaders in my upbringing was generally that these guys were incredibly sincere, actually. And to this day, one of the leaders who I used two leaders from my upbringing as archetypes to kind of embody different streams of evangelicalism. One of them is C.J. Mahaney, who was the head pastor of our church and our family of churches for a long time and is now somewhat, if not mostly, disgraced, but is trying to rebuild his family of churches down in Kentucky and Louisville. But he, he embodies the more theological, more bookish. These are all conservative folks, but he's the more bookish wing and more isolationist from politics. The other leader is a guy named Lou Engel, who was always more interested in big signs and wonders, miracles, prophecies, all that. And he's become very political over the last 20 years and is actually a fairly significant figure in the New Apostolic Reformation, which is the backbone of Christian Trumpism. But both of those guys were very sincere. And I mean, if you look at like videos of Lou Angle on YouTube, I actually think it would be hard to fake what he does. Like it's just so out there that it'd be really hard to fake it. And I think at the cultural level, if you take a guy like CJ, I think it's probably like that frog in a pot type analogy where, you know, at a certain point you realize like, I've got myself in a situation where people are doing whatever I, and it didn't happen overnight. I mean, maybe it did, but it probably happened more gradually for him where he just realized like, I can say this and people will follow me. Whereas with a guy like Angle, I think this applies as well to both in addition, but I think the economic factor is also how guys get locked into these self-reinforcing systems. Angle's probably a better example, but it applies to both where you develop a following early on and that sort of dictates who you can speak to and who will follow you. If you try to break out of that, you're kind of starting over financially. And I think that also keeps people from evolving and growing in a lot of ways. Well, and, and you note in your book that your father was a pastor in this church, but wasn't. And you also noted neither one of you were yes men enough to really climb the ladder all the way to the top, right? You were both, I know your father is still deeply committed. I don't want to misrepresent that, but both of you were too free thinking enough, even in the context of how you grew up, to reach all the way to the top. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's really just that we were too thinking. Like, it does require a bit of self-lobotomization to just keep going with this stuff and not at least ask a couple questions. Neither one of my father and I, neither one of us are bomb throwers or, you know, boat rockers in any kind of dramatic sense. But, you know, he passed on to me. Like, for example, he would read me the Proverbs, which talk about seeking wisdom and seeking knowledge. And that was fundamental to my religious education in a very informal sense. But it kind of got into my bones. And, you know, 
it's not a high bar to think for yourself at least a little bit. And um, once you start doing that and you start asking why, that does put a cap on your, your ability to climb up the ladder in these systems. But why is such a fundamental question to so much? And so how does, to your point about the self-lobotomization, how does that start with one person at the pulpit and spread to tens, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a book coming out in late August called The Woman They Wanted by Shannon Harris, who was married to Josh Harris, who wrote a best-selling Christian book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And I'll be talking to Shannon, I think, on the podcast about it. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how she does a great job of illustrating how in her own life and in the lives of other people around her, because she was a pastor's wife, very high up in our church, you are so encouraged to stop thinking and stop asking why that you essentially become a zombie and your life is sort of overtaken by duties and obligations And your body really does, as the saying goes, keeps the score. So she writes about the ways that people's health betrayed them because they just were not able to process a lot of the difficulty they were going through or the questions they were not asking. And how does it spread? I mean, I think it's a really important question, Reed, actually, because so often in critiques of fundamentalist religion or evangelicalism or even right-wing politics... People overlook or skip the appeal and the reasons why people are in these movements. And, you know, there's many different reasons from a sense of belonging to a sense of purpose and meaning to a a sense of having a strong identity, a sense of community, answers to your greatest questions. I mean, all of these things. The laying off of responsibility to a massive might I say, omnipotent external authority. Yes. I mean, laying off of responsibility, I I think that's one way to to put it. You know, I I think everyone in the world has to outsource a lot of their questions and their puzzles to sources of authority. So it's not as if all of us are just like working through all of our questions all the time. But I think the way in which a lot of people in these settings gravitate, I think what they're gravitating to is a greater sense of certainty than we actually are able to have about a lot of these questions. The only other thing I would say is that if you look at Brazil, where the growth of evangelical charismatic practice is exploding, I think it points to the ways in which people do really receive some psychic comfort in a lot of these emotional church meetings. They go there, they are able to express themselves to connect with other human beings at a very raw emotional level. So there's elements of the culture there that I think are also really important to understand in its appeal. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications They help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So let's talk a little bit about you, because at some point here, I'm going to read this. As, As a young man, you said, quote, we were American Shiites. 
We may have been sitting in a Starbucks in suburbia trying not to be overheard, but in our own way, we were essentially doing the same thing, metaphorically, emotionally, psychologically, as Shiite Muslims did when they marched through the streets of a holy city like Najaf each year, whipping themselves during the observation of Ashura. And you also note that you lived in a hermetically sealed world in that same basic passage. So tell us a little bit about how you go from being an American Shiite to being a, a national political reporter. The comparison to Shiites came from a, a period in which we were very focused on Calvinist theology. And so we were endlessly self-condemning and, and it was a very unhappy experience. And you can read about all that in the book. But, you know, I, I think probably one of the first steps to me, you know, if you're going to put it in the church's terms, like being tempted, the first step of my temptation was probably just going to college. And I lived at home. I didn't spend much time on campus. I didn't really go to any parties because actually after my sophomore year of college where I went to community college, I kind of gave up partying because I recommitted my life to Christianity. So I was very, very zealous. I was a fanatic in my third and fourth years of college when I was going to the University of Maryland. But I had a couple of professors, one in particular, who really encouraged my love of learning and writing and reading. And there was quite a contrast, actually, between that environment where it was just very encouraging and affirming and the church environment where it was very rules-based and it was very fear-based. And I definitely didn't think of it consciously in that way at the time, but I was able to get some oxygen for my person, my soul, in that I think college classroom experience with Michael Ulmer, my Shakespeare professor. And I think that was one of the things that helped me to gravitate towards what I saw was a wider, broader world where there was a lot of actually a lot of beauty, a lot of room for exploration and meaning making. And actually, I saw it as a way to love God with my mind and my talents. And so from there, I studied literature, but I ended up in newspapers a couple years later, simply because I wanted to write for a living. And so I ended up at the Washington Times that way. Right. So to move into your career, tell us a little bit about how you go from, you know, the Washington Times to Tucker Carlson, now to Yahoo, and how that coincided with your revelations, and I use that word on purpose, with what is going on with the evangelical movement in this country. Well, the way that things went for me. I went through a year and a half at the caller with Tucker, left that after I saw that it was not going to be somewhere I wanted to be. And then I covered campaigns at the Huffington Post for a couple of years and then came to Yahoo in 14. So basically, I mean, I was already in 2015 seeing a lot of concerning signs about polarization and people not understanding each other in our country. And I was already trying to help our audience think about you know, how can we as a country and as individuals and as citizens try to work across this divide? Because this is not a healthy thing, but it's not insurmountable. I mean, the truth is out there and there are solutions to our problems, but we need to work at it. And then when Trump came along, I just, I made a pretty conscious decision to stop doing the kind of journalism I had done before that, which is quite frankly, a lot of it is aimed at not all, but a lot of it is aimed at writing for other journalists and other people inside the Beltway. You know, the whole universe of scoops and micro scoops, like the average American could not care less about that. They just want to understand what's happening. But a lot of journalism 
in the industry is about, you know, proving how much you can beat the other reporter to finding out who the vice presidential nominee is going to be. And that's a big scoop. And there are many much smaller scoops. So I decided I'm not going to go behind the curtain and like share the gossip anymore. I'm going to step back, try to think about things from a very systemic, big picture level and try to help our audience understand like how we got to this point. And that's what I've been doing basically for the last eight years. And so let's talk about this because you mentioned Lou Engel and I, and I want to talk about as your career, the evangelical movement, and I'm going to call it Trumpism, John, because that's shorthand, um, have started to come together, right? This hyperpolarization that you reference and said, you say here, quote, because Engel did not think of himself as operating in political action, but rather in supernatural warfare, there was no distinction in his mind between his spirituality and his politics. So his politics became defined by a vision of violent combat. I mean, we hear a lot of those types of words, certainly from a lot of the more MAGA pastors, right, who, you know, talk about lining people up against a wall if they're a certain persuasion. You know, we heard Ron DeSantis from Florida talk about slitting throats. Obviously, Trump has never shied away from violent rhetoric. So take us through how these threads have all come together and how they've centered on a guy. And I know that people have asked this question before, but because you have a profound understanding and history with it, how the evangelical movement, at least for the moment, is willing to put up with a leader who would seem so antithetical to so many of the values that you grew up with. You know, I think in 2016, a lot of evangelicalism, a lot of evangelicals, first of all, were not on the Trump train at first. You know, you can dispute how many people were, were with him at first, but certainly there was a lot of resistance to Trump in the primary, which is overcome in many respects by the winner-take-all system, which, you know, allowed Trump to win the majority of those early states with between 30 and 40 percent of the vote. And, you know, you pair that with a lack of collective action on the part of, quote-unquote, the establishment. You know, no ability to cohere around a single alternative, therefore splitting the rest of the vote. And so it was kind of in some ways a failure of leadership, a failure of elite political leadership. And so a lot of evangelicals, once it got to the general election, kind of their political identities overtook any sense of religious identity. And I think you pair that with a grave sense of fear from being told for decades that they're on the verge of being persecuted. And you pair that with a lack of discernment and critical thinking from being in these cultures which are dismissive of the need to really be rigorous and think about a lot of these things and search for knowledge. And then I think from then, I think it's become a problem of identity getting locked into Trumpism. And Trump has done a great job over time of baiting his opponents or his critics into hyperbole and sometimes, you know, getting over their... I think you could say this even about the FBI. They have not been anywhere as bad as the Republicans say, but they did make mistakes in the way that they investigated some of those issues early on. And I think, you know, there was probably some of what I'm describing going on, which was Trump was clearly unqualified for the presidency and also a threat to our democratic fabric. Everybody pretty much knew this at the beginning and said so. 
until they started changing their tune. And so you look at the media, the media has often overreacted or reacted, you know, to the wrong things, the sort of minor controversies that are outrageous rather than staying focused on the substance and on being sober. All of that combined creates a dynamic where, you know, Trump is getting attacked and he tells his followers they're attacking me because I'm standing between them and you. That's really the core of his appeal a lot of the time. And so I think now you have that combined with a sense in which at a certain point, defending something so indefensible means you have to really depart from the same epistemic system of facts that other people are engaged in. And so I think more and more he's taken his followers into a sort of relativistic alternative reality where the truth is either what he says it is or just like if people criticize him, it's automatically invalid because, you know, we just don't believe anything that his critics say. Right. And sort of when he says that, it's the attacks on him become the attacks on me, which is he's convinced people of that. So the more that I attack him, the more that his people lock in on him. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this. I mean, how do you see the evangelical movement today, I guess, in the abstract, but also, you know, in the context of coming elections? I don't want to make it a smaller discussion, John, but I, I do want to understand how you see this because they are, you know, a significant and I think have for a long time been a significant voting bloc for Republicans. Trump can't win without them. Do you think there's anything he could do that would break off their support? I think that evangelicals at the end of the day are a voting block like most other voting blocks in one respect, which is if they think you're a loser, they will grow to somebody else. That's within the context of a primary. So I'm not making an argument based on any kind of appeal to morality or religion or theology, certainly not as the only, you know, instrument here. But I think and, you know, the polling doesn't show much evidence of this at this moment. But I think if, if anything were to change in the Republican primary, it would be perhaps a combination of evangelicals like other voters, like other Republican primary voters, deciding that he's likely to lose in the general election. And I think, you know, there's still time for that argument to play out. The economy will play a role. Biden's sort of how he fares physically over the next six months will play a role. You know, because that factors into how Republicans are thinking about their chances in the general election as they get into the early primary state uh, votes. And then, you know, can the Republican Party, the majority of which I think still, despite the polls showing 54 percent, I would be willing to wager that the majority of Republicans, certainly when you get to the political establishment and even at the voter level, I, I think there's an appetite for somebody else. But again, it's so split amongst other people that, you know, there would need to be a cohesion, a collective action issue where people united around an alternative. And if that were to happen, you know, that would be the only way I could see Trump losing the primary. But again, that piece of it, that collective action has seemed to have been across so many strains of our country, our society, our body politic is the one that concerns me most, John, which is not to dumb it down, but right, I mean, all it takes for bad things to happen is for good men to sit by and do nothing, good men and women. And I think that, you know, for me, for my concerns, John, is that the antipathy of some, right, especially Trump supporters, 
for the system as we know it, for the rule of law, for decency, whatever the case might be, that isn't founded in, as I said about Lou Engle, the supernatural, right? These terms of combat. But for everybody else, it's the apathy, right? It doesn't matter anyway. You know, the sort of lol, nothing matters wing that is, is I think, probably very prevalent in a place like Washington, D.C., which, to your point, I think is absolutely right, is very disconnected. And so many people there think Biden wins, fine. Trump wins. Even if I don't like him, fine. We figured it out the first time. We'll figure it out the next time. I think there's some of that. I think there's also just a sense of, you know, and I have to say I've experienced some of this myself. Like I tried to sound the alarm for years and it fell on deaf ears and it just seemed oftentimes to be counterproductive. So it does create a way of feeling and thinking about the situation that borders on hopelessness. And, you know, there's a quote from James Baldwin about how, like, the biggest thing you can do, even in the face of things that are hard, is just keep trying to do your duty. And, you know, as long as you don't abdicate your duty, you're doing the right thing. But it's a temptation to abdicate because, you know, again, because I think a lot of it is structural. The challenges and obstacles to collective action are very high from an incentive structure perspective. And the way things work now advantages, you know, bomb throwers and demagogues. And unfortunately, that's something that most people I'm comfortable saying, they just don't understand that. They don't understand the ways that things work to the advantage of the dishonest, cynical demagogue. And that's why so many of the problems are structural and so many of the solutions have to be structural and, quite frankly, long-term. But that's a big part of the challenge. To me, John, one of the issues is the collective action is, it sounds like it's too big a problem, but to me, you know what else it is, is it's will. It's the will to do it. A lot of people have the ability. A lot of people have the desire, whether or not that's latent or sort of passive. But at the end, you've got to say, I'm going to stand up and do this if I believe in it. I have the will to do this and I understand I might win, I might lose. I don't even want to put it in those terms, right? You talk about the, the danger of black and white. Elections typically are binary. So, you know, it's a little hard sometimes to get out of that one side of the coin versus the other sort of thinking. But I think, too, is that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to have the will to get up and say, this isn't okay, and I'm going to do what I can, to your point. You can call it service. You can call it duty, whatever the case might be. But, you know, again, if you're disconnected enough from the system that you don't believe any of it matters anyway, then that will can be hard to come by. It's a tricky question. I think for the average person, there are certainly little things they can do. But I think the two groups that I think you know, your sort of scenario applies to most clearly would be elected officials. But even they probably feel quite justifiably like they are just throwing a pebble in the way of a tsunami. A lot of times if they stand up and try to stop sort of the Trump train when it's really going down the tracks, he looks like he's a runaway train going to win. Where I actually think the problem of collective action might be solved is at the donor level, the big money level. Like it or not, that's what controls a lot of politics. They are kind of one of the few gatekeepers left. And I think that could be an instrument. 
to produce some kind of candidate as an alternative to Trump, but I have no idea whether that will happen or not, or even if it will work. Right. So let me ask you this as we, you know, round the bend for home here. I feel like that in many ways, and you mentioned this in the book, and again, I don't, I mean, Fox started this before Trump, but Trump really, it was an accelerant to so much of this, is a media culture where there is an alternative universe. I don't want to call them alternative facts, facts are facts, but an alternative universe where you can turn on a Fox or an OAN or one of those. And if major outlets are covering A, Fox and OAN are covering Zaphod Beeblebrox, right? Like it's literally not the same world. It's not the same universe. But give us a little sense of your perspective on that. I've had a long interest in like media ecology, which is just another way of talking about the ways that our technology shapes the way we understand the world. And so I've long been a fan of Neil Postman and his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and have for a long time been very skeptical of the influence of television, not on in any ideological sense, but just that it shifts everything towards entertainment rather than substance. And I think social media has sort of played its own role in this, in lowering the barrier for what counts as knowledge. And I saw this happening in the summer of 2020 when I encountered somebody, a family friend who is, you know, fairly reasonable person who I discovered was basically looking at stuff on Instagram, basically memes from people that they trusted from other aspects of their life, namely religion. And they were seeing these memes and interpreting them as, you know, credible news stories. They were they were viewing them the same as credible news stories. And so, you know, that's one element in which this alternative universe has been created. But I was reminded recently that there's been an alternative conservative right-wing media universe for a very long time. I mean, it just took it a while to catch up to the internet. But, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, there were 2,200 Christian bookstores across the country and Focus on the Family Radio had an audience of 220 million people who listen to its radio show. So there's been this alternative echo chamber for a long time, but it's taken it a while to catch up to the internet, I think. Well, and I think that's why also as someone who came up in Republican politics, whenever the idea of, you know, the the liberal media, right, it was always more of a, you know, it was a talking point and a way to raise money, right? I mean, Republicans, especially Republican presidents, you know, won in spite of the liberal media all the time, right? It was never a to your point about the concept of a gatekeeper, right? The liberal media was never a gatekeeper to a Republican winning office. Well, and, you know, the way to beat the liberal media, if you really think it's so bad, is to join it and reform it from inside. But I think to your point, that was never the focus of the right's energy. It was because it was a convenient stalking horse to raise money and win votes and win attention. You know, Rush Limbaugh made a career and millions of dollars off of this, and many others have followed his example, not because, you know, he beat the media at its own game, but because he simply beat up on the media all the time. And that's a lot easier to do, quite frankly, than doing better reporting. It's much easier to complain and criticize and point out problems than it is to actually build something better. So, John, tell us, before you go, what are you looking at out there right now in your reporting? Yeah. I'm doing a lot of reporting on free speech and censorship. This is a big talking point for Republicans. I really love this topic because I'm a huge believer in free speech. And I also think that 
the topic or the, the idea of free speech is kind of, and censorship, are often tossed around in ways that are kind of cynical and oversimplistic. And I love the interplay between these topics in the physical world and the online world. And I think it's really interesting to look at the ways in which conservatives will say that the answer to speech you don't like on the internet is more speech. And so we should have no content moderation. But when it comes to, you know, the Stanford Law School students who shouted down a conservative judge, their talking point was the answer to speech we don't like is more speech. And so both sides are kind of often inconsistent and incoherent when you try to apply their principles across both sides. I think that when you point out hypocrisy on both sides in that respect, it hopefully allows the reader or the listener to start thinking about what these terms actually mean and how we can think about them carefully when it comes to the internet, especially. But even at Stanford, the law school dean said that like there are limits on free speech. And a conservative might hear that online and say, well, no, there's not. But when they look at it at Stanford, they might say, yeah, there are. And so that's where I like to kind of prod. Well, again, it's, you know, okay for me, but not for thee in so many cases. And I, and I think also, like so many other problems, as we noted at the beginning, John, as you mentioned, you know, this idea of black and white, that the world is sometimes black and white, but far more often fine shades of gray and the nuance of everything is lost. And, you know, I know that I'm guilty of this, right? You're with me or you're against me, right? It's very easy. It makes you feel good. It provides a level of moral certainty, right? Whether that's it's actually moral or amoral or immoral. And, you know, nuance, shades of gray are hard. You have to think about it. You have to be discerning and take a deep breath. And right now, people would rather be breathless than taking a moment to decide, well, okay, this person is someone I normally agree with. They said this one thing I disagree with. Should I disagree with them on everything now? I mean, I think it was even Ronald Reagan who said, you know, if we agree with each other on 70% of everything, right, we're probably friends. But nowadays, it's if you don't agree with me on 170% of everything, then you're not my friend, right? It's ride or die all the time. Yeah, the speed and velocity of information is a good example of one of the many structural factors that advantage the bad faith demagogue these days, rather than those who are trying to help us have a conversation and think through things carefully. All right, John, where can we find you on social media if you're still there? And where can we find your work? Yeah, that's uh, it's not such a clear cut answer anymore. I mean, I'm on Twitter or X at J O N W A R D one one, but that's sort of a that's dying on the vine. It appears to be. Maybe that was his point all along. So probably the best place to look is just at my author website, which is John Ward Writes J O N W A R D W R I T E S dot org. You mentioned the Substack. I appreciate that, and the podcast, the Long Game. So those are probably the best places right now. And as always, gang, yes, I'm still going to call it Twitter because X is ridiculous. At Reed Galen, TikTok, the same handle, at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. John Ward, I want to thank you for joining me today. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln 
And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.